0: In this morning's text, which comes to us from the 12th chapter, according to the Gospel of John, if you know the context, it's important to understand its meaning. For the first 12 chapters, all of the people, the crowds, are starting to surround Jesus more and more and calling for Him to be King of Israel, the Messiah. The first big impact came when Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and turn them into enough food to feed 5,000, not counting the women and the children. And that was the point the crowds clamored, king, be king, be king. And especially then when he raised Lazarus from the grave, which came just right before today's text, all the crowds gathered around and said, "This, this is the Messiah. This is the king of Israel. Be the king that we need you to be. The chief priests didn't want him to be the king of course because it would mean that they would not be king and so they began to plot for Jesus' death and not only Jesus' death they plotted to kill Lazarus because if you get rid of the proof of Jesus' power of raising the dead from the from the grave then you will also get rid of the power that he holds with the crowds so with that context all the crowds gathered for Jesus' entrance I'm going to ask you to listen for this word with a new understanding. The next day, it says, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! The king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written in Zechariah, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that is, crucified and resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, you're going to have to trust me on this because I'm going to lead us through a sort of congregational meditation. Now, I appreciate Carol DeGusto opening the door on this several weeks ago when I understand she had you meditate briefly, too. So now that you've had some practice, uh, this won't be too awkward. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, to close your eyes, not just look down like you're sending texts, but you're not going to believe how many times I see that, by the way. But close your eyes and trust me and follow with your imagination. Get rid of the parade of today with lovely children sword fighting their way down the aisle with palm leaves. Begin to imagine what it must have been like when Jesus rode in. Imagine you were there, Outside the 20-foot-high, six-foot-thick walls of Jerusalem, facing east with a large crowd of people, children, teenagers, adults, babies, lining both sides of a dusty road. There's an energy in the crowd, a murmuring of excitement, and you strain to catch sight of this man, Jesus. Jesus. You've heard of him, his healing and teaching, and he even heard that he raised a dead man named Lazarus. You, along with everyone else there, have almost run out of hope that God will ever save you and your people from the demonic empire of Rome and the religious leaders in the temple who have become their pawns. But deep down, You still hope that this man might be the savior after all, the Messiah you have raided for for generations. All your senses are on edge, a little frightened because you know the authorities are out to get him and you worry they might take you with him. But if he really is the Messiah, then you hope he will wipe them out with one word. Then, then you see him coming over the hill, drawing near. And immediately you are stunned. He is not a man of power and strength, as you expected. He is not leading legions of warriors or riding on a white stallion. Instead, he is humble, gentle, and riding awkwardly on a young donkey and you were so disappointed. How can this man save us? Now with your eyes still closed, ask yourselves, what is it you hope for him to save you from? Your cancer, your grief, your despair, your addiction? Is it your marriage that needs saving, or your lack of faith, your fear of the future, your anxiety, your regrets of the past, your mistakes? Is it about saving us from politics, or religion, or AR-15s? Maybe it is being saved with our anger toward a parent or a brother or sister or child or boss or ex-wife or even ourselves for being angry in the first place. Maybe it's fear you need him to save you from or cynicism or meaninglessness. What is it you want him to save you from? You can open your eyes. I don't know if you've noticed, but there seems to be an epidemic of strong men taking charge around the world these days. In Turkey it's Recep Erdogan, in Philippines it's Duterte, China it's Xi Jinping, in Russia it's Vladimir Putin, in Poland it's Andre Duda, in North Korea Kim Jong-un. Have you noticed how strong men love parades? Big parades, very big parades, with all their military stuff being showcased. Missiles and cannons and tanks rolling in precision. With military bands playing the fight song of the national uh, culture. With all the soldiers walking, marching in lockstep. And the fans saluting and waving while the big strong man in the box cl- applauds and salutes and waves. What is it with this strong man shtick these days, I wonder? And what is it about strong men and their pickups? I know you think I have a thing against pickups, since I preached on that commercial on Super Bowl Sunday about the ram pickup with Martin Luther King's words being shadowed in the background, and how it turned his words completely upside down, and how and how that pickup with its big ram signal on the front was meant to show us that it is built to serve, using the words of Jesus in the exact opposite sense in which they were given. I don't hate pickups. In fact, I covet pickups. I wish I owned a pickup. But there's something about a big, strong pickup that strong men love and Madison Avenue marketers love to write commercials about. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching the NCAA basketball tournament and a GMC pickup commercial came on. I was texting as I often, or reading my phone as I often do during commercials but I thought I overheard something that got my attention. And since I was recording it, I played it back and I had to play it back several times in order to get it right. You can't make this stuff up. There's the image of a young father with a family and his wife in the living room and uh, that will soon turn into an image of a massive pickup doing some heavy strong man job. And a voice comes on and says, how do you want to live? As a decent person, a good husband. Is that it? Good. Of course not. King of the hill, better. Top of your game, win. All powerful, like a boss, like a pro. We couldn't agree more. We are professional grade. Step up. To GMC. King of the Hill is better. Top of your game is better than being a decent person or a good husband. All powerful is best still. You tell me our culture is not about strong man mentality. And that's what we want in our God That's what we want in our God and our Jesus Savior presence to ride in on a strong man pickup or a stallion. The anthem we sang this morning mentions that he will ride in on a milk white horse, but that's the hope, you see, for it is an African-American spiritual written by those who are persecuted and down and out and you need somebody who's going to ride in in a stallion to save you from slavery. That's why they sang it. But it's not a stallion he rides in on. It's not a pickup truck he rides in on. It is a donkey colt. It would be like him riding in instead of a pickup, riding in on a tricycle. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, or so, he came to save people from the powers of darkness, and it was not on a stallion. And it turns out that the parade that Jesus orchestrated was meant to mock the strong man thing that we think runs the world, to mock it. Instead of John Wayne, a superhero savior, coming to confront the evil powers, he came in peace and gentleness and humility. In the end, he surrendered himself to those religious and Roman powers he knew would probably torture and kill him. We hate that word, surrender. It it sounds so defeatist. I was teaching a Sunday school class back in atlanta and we were talking about how sooner or later to be able to find the space in our hearts for christ to live we have to surrender and everybody in that class said no 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 not that word not that word surrender but you talk to any person who was sober after dealing with addiction and they're going to tell you there is no other word that works it is surrender and Jesus orchestrated this whole parade to mock that whole strong man thing and to surrender his whole self giving, self love presence to the very powers that he knew would do him in. And it does not mean defeat, it means victory. In the most paradoxical way it can, the victory of Christ is made real through his surrender and death on a cross, for that becomes the catalyst of all transformation, the very crisis point, the crucis point of all transformation in his act of gentle, humble surrender. It's not a passive submission, but a powerful act of confronting the powers face to face meant to mock and defeat the strong man thing in the world, as I've said, and in that way, it cannot do it with power and might. Violence or a gun will not do it. This is why Jesus came, and the way he came, to confront a world that believed that the only way to defeat the powers and darkness were through the greater power and violence and domination. Because he refused to feed it, he transformed everything. Because he refused to feed it, he turned around the whole concept of power and domination. Because he refused to feed it, he set us free from it. What Walter Wink said in The Powers to Be, what killed Jesus was not atheism, but religion itself, It was not crime and lawlessness, but precisely the law. It was not anarchy, but the upholding of order. It was not the bestial, but those considered the best who crucified the incarnate Son of God because he was God present, completely innocent, undeserving, the very embodiment of law, order, and religion. His victimhood exposed their need for sacrificial violence for what it was, an attack against God. If you've grown up in the church, you were taught, I'm sure, about substitutionary atonement theory. And the theory goes that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, according to Jonathan Edwards, and that we being sinners cannot do anything to receive God's love because being sinners, we're defiled and we, we can't repent enough because God, being God and infinite and just, God demands that there be a price to be paid greater than we can pay it. So the theory goes of atonement that God pays the price for us by sending his Son. Jesus Christ, to die and suffer on the cross. And in that way, that price is now balanced out. The ledger is now made clean. God has paid the price for us by the blood of Christ, and now we are washed clean and no longer at the power of the guilt and shame that goes with it. Now I want to say that that's one theory about it, but it's my least favorite. And it took me a long time to figure it out. And if you ever listen to me preach around this time, you know that I'm always hearkening on another possible theory that I think today's passage makes crystal clear to us. It is not that God demands a price to be paid. It is not that God is keeping a divine cosmic scorecard that we have to measure up to that Jesus has to pay the price for. It is not that God needs us to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, it is us. We're the ones who know that we're estranged from God. We're the ones who know that God needs to claim us, or that we want God to claim us whether we are sinful or not. We're the ones who know that the balance sheet has to be cleared off We demand a sacrifice be paid because we're human beings who always live with that just talionus law, don't we? And unless that price is paid, we can never accept the possibility that God loves us unconditionally. So that sense is why Jesus came to clear the books for us. Not so we will be reconciled to God, but so that God and we will know that God has been reconciled to us. And not an angry God. It is not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's angry sinners in the hands of a gentle, loving God. So when Jesus rode in the way he did, it completely overturned this whole sacrificial system, this whole system that's based on hierarchy and priesthood and temple worship, where the priest tells the people, you gotta do what I'm gonna tell you you gotta do in order to be saved. And you gotta get in line, and you need to be paying up big bucks for this temple, and you need to follow the law, and you need to do it all just right because an angry God is watching, and just as Jesus saved you from your sins, you're not totally saved unless you You go through the temple priest who's going to tell you you're saved. Jesus turned the whole scheme of that upside down and made himself completely accessible to the people on a donkey. Ultimately giving himself up. And in doing that, as Paul says in Colossians, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God shows us in Jesus on the cross that what leads to the killing of his son ends up mocking the very ones who killed him. It ends up mocking redemptive violence. It ends up mocking strong man mentality. This is what Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Parkland High School football coach who took the bullet knew. This is what the high school students in Parkland, Florida and all over our country know and are learning from uh, and teaching us. It is only through the power of living self-sacrifice that the dark powers of the strong man and all who support that way will ever be broken. For if you try to break it with power, you're only... You're only convicting yourself. We cannot overcome the powers of darkness with violence. We can keep it at bay, but we can't overcome it. Only love freely given, not passive love, confrontational love, head on love, even if it means suffering love, face to head on face, like Jesus did through innocent suffering in the face of the forces of evil, love can be called out and show us the shame of it all. Just as Bill Connor was called out in Birmingham when he shamed himself and his city, turning the dogs and fire hoses on those children of God that dark day during the civil rights crisis. Jesus shows us that love in action is like an intervention A confrontation that tells us to change the way we see the world. This morning's celebration of Palm Sunday is the start of the greatest and most ironic story of all. The passion story where the true king, the true Messiah, the greatest strong man in history, is a collapsed, suffering figure on a cross. The failure of Jesus... The failure of Jesus is our success. You get that? So now, instead of saving us from all the things that we earlier wanted Him to save us from, imagine Him coming and saving us from the deepest and most profound thing we need to be saved from ourselves our fears our egomaniacal strong man or strong woman shell. To save us from the dark illusion that power and violence is the only way out. And when he comes, he brings so much. He brings us the promise of light in the midst of darkness. He brings us the way toward becoming more fully ourselves as we become more fully like Christ. He brings us peace and hope and faith. He brings us the way into God's kingdom which only comes when we die to ourselves as Jesus did. In God's goodness in time, a tremendous paradox will be revealed to us that what we now perceive as suffering and death is in reality a hidden time of awakening and new birth. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.